We are in a series titled Q&A, Your Questions, God's Answers, and um, this is the uh, fourth message in that series. Uh, Topic this morning is, uh, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and how may I receive it? And um, I mentioned in the first message, when I was delivering the first message in this series, that uh, for me to say I'm giving you God's answers is a tall order. Uh, I'm giving you to the best of my ability what I believe God's word says and uh, trying to be uh, true to the scriptures. And and so hopefully this will be at least pretty close. Um, The original question that was turned in that I edited, but didn't really need to be edited, I, I just did. But the original questions were, is there such a thing as being baptized in the Holy Spirit? And is it correct to pray to be filled with the Spirit? Now, I want to say as I get into this, I love you. I love each of you. I know that we come from different experiences and uh, that we have different perspectives on this subject. I don't believe that there's anything here that should divide us um, with regard to our spiritual experiences. Um, so I'm going to tell you what I think God's Word says, and uh, but I also uh, want you to know, and for those of you who are, uh, come from a charismatic background, I want you to know that I am not a, so just right up front, that I am not personally a cessationist. That is, I don't believe that, that uh, any of the, the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. I believe that they're still operative in the church. Uh, how that um, comes about, we may differ on today, but I uh, hope that at the end we'll love each other and that the Spirit of God that is, makes unity in the church will continue to do that. So um, let's begin with this, that the baptism, and by the way, I want you to take notes this morning. If you, if you have a Bible, whether it's electronic or manual, <laughs> have it open. I hope you have a pen. I hope that you'll take notes. I want you to know that this is, a, this is not a short message. Uh, we may go over a little bit, um, but, um, and it's not, a, it's not a light message. You're going to want to take notes. At the end, you're going to feel like you got to drink from a fire hydrant. You've got more on you than in you. But um, I hope that uh, this will stimulate interaction. And uh, it was great after the first service as several people come up with questions, which was awesome. So first thing, baptism in the Holy Spirit is one of the ways that the New Testament describes the beginning of the Christian life. Uh, The Christian life is life in the spirit. It would be impossible uh, to be a Christian, let alone to grow as a Christian, uh, without the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. So every believer in Christ has an experience of the Holy Spirit from the very first moments of his or her Christian life. If you are a Christian today, if you've believed in Christ Before you were aware of Jesus, the Spirit of God was drawing you to him. In other words, before you ever had any sense of what was going on, he he had you in his tractor beam, we'd say in Star Trek language. Uh, John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Christian life begins with a new birth, and the new birth is a birth of the Spirit. Jesus said to his friend Nicodemus, 
the Pharisee, remember Nick at night, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Paul wrote to the believers in the Roman province of Galatia that we receive the Spirit, not as the result of any good works we have done, but by hearing the gospel combined with faith. Galatians 3, verses 2 and 14, Paul asked the Galatians, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer, of course, to that rhetorical question is by hearing with faith. He goes on in verse 14, we receive the promised Spirit through faith. In other words, the same way that we receive Christ as our Savior by faith, through faith, by grace, through faith, in the same way we receive the promised Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, when we trust in Christ, comes to dwell in us, and the indwelling of the Spirit is the common possession of all, say all, all of God's children. Romans 8, verse 9, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now listen to this categorical statement he adds. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The mark of belonging, the condition of belonging to Christ is to have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And we ask the question, is it it that God makes us his children and then gives us the Holy Spirit? Or that he gives gives us his spirit who then makes us his children? And the answer is that the Apostle Paul put it both ways. Galatians 4 verse 6, he says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. In Romans 8, 14 to 15, he said, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. He goes on to say that spirit enables us to say to God, Abba or Daddy, Father, the mark of sonship. Either way you look at it, the result is the same. All who have the Spirit of God, say all. All who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them are, all, are, are the children of God, and all who are children of God have the Spirit of God. It is impossible to have the Spirit of God living in you without being a child of God, or to be a child of God without having the Spirit of God in you. Every genuine believer in Jesus has been, say every, 
every, every genuine believer in Jesus has been, past tense, baptized in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, Paul writing to the church at Corinth that struggled with this doctrine of the Holy Spirit. For just as the body, that is the church, is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, say one, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all, say all, were made to drink of one spirit. So there is no such thing as a genuine Christian who has not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, I'm not going to read this, but just make a note of this, and you can look at it later if you'd like. In Romans 8, Paul uses four expressions interchangeably. It seems that in his mind, that is to be in Christ and to be in the Spirit, to have the Spirit in you and to have Christ in you are all synonymous expressions. They describe the same reality. No one can have Christ then without having the Holy Spirit. And in fact, Jesus made this clear in what's called the upper room discourse, that that time that he spent in the upper room with his disciples before he was betrayed and arrested and went to the cross. You can read that in John 14 through 16. Jesus drew no distinction between the coming to us of the three persons of the triune Godhead. He said to his disciples, I will come to you. He said, I won't leave you alone. I will come to you. Also, in that same conversation, he said, we will come. And in that context, he was referring to both the Father and the Son. And he said, the helper will come, or the comforter. The parakletos, who would come alongside, the helper will come, referring to the Holy Spirit. So that when we are born of the Spirit through faith in Christ, the Spirit takes up residence in our lives. He makes our bodies his temple. And from there, he begins to transform us from the inside out, progressively making us like Jesus. The ministry of the Spirit is in largest part to reveal Christ to us, to glorify Christ, to reveal him to us, and to form Christ in us. It's by the power of the indwelling spirit that the evil desires of our fallen nature are restrained and that the good fruit of godly character is produced in our lives. It's the spirit who unifies and unites the body of Christ, the church, so that Christian fellowship is fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives us gifts to to minister to others, to build up the church. And it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Spirit, Paul says, is the deposit or the seal, the guarantee of our eternal inheritance. It's like the Holy Spirit is like a a diamond ring that, that ensures our engagement, the mark of our engagement, and that we are to be married one day to Christ in his presence. 
on the last day. It will be the spirit, God's word says, who gives life to our mortal bodies. But let's come back to the original question. What exactly is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and how is it received? And I want to begin here that the prophets, the Old Testament prophets promised the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They looked forward to it. Isaiah pointed to the day when the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. In chapter 44, God speaking through Isaiah said, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God pointed to a time when they shall know that I am the Lord their God when I pour out my Spirit upon the house of Israel. The Old Testament writers are in agreement that that the outpouring of the Spirit of God would be the distinctive blessing of the new covenant that God would make with Israel. The new covenant uh, that God would make with Israel is described in greatest detail by the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Problem with the old covenant is none of us could keep it. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. There's a lot there. But just notice these features of the covenant. First of all, in verse 33, God says, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts, no longer on stone tablets, but on their hearts. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Second, notice verse 34. All who are included in the covenant enter into a personal relationship with the Lord by which they have direct access to God because he will act once and for all to solve the problem of the sin that separates us from him. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now this isn't forgive and forget. This is forgive by forgiveness by a God who knows everything and doesn't forget, but never again imputes the penalty of our sin to us. He never holds it against us. We would say he never brings it up again or uses it against us. This got accomplished by the atoning work of Christ on the cross, offering one sacrifice for all the sin of all people for all time. Through the prophet Joel, God promised, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. 
Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone, say everyone, who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, notice the almost universal description by the Old Testament prophets of a time that was yet to come when the Holy Spirit of God would be poured out, just deluged on God's people to the end that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved without distinction. Under the Old Covenant, the Spirit was not accessible to everyone. Instead, under the Old Covenant, the Spirit of God would come upon select individuals, Uh, And then not permanently, but only temporarily to equip and to empower them for various roles or tasks, for example, to prophesy, to lead, or to rule God's people or to make war. And so the promise of the Spirit being poured out on everyone, everyone, regardless of gender or age, was an absolutely radical promise. Remember in Psalm 51, after which we presumed to be David's writing after the, his sin with Bathsheba, he prayed, Let not, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Remember that? That was a very real possibility in David's mind that that would be what God did. And, and God would take the Spirit away and remove his blessing. And yet the precise word baptism is never used in the Old Testament with regard to the ministry of of the Holy Spirit. It's always this outpouring. The baptism of the Spirit, in the Spirit, or with the Spirit, is is a uniquely New Testament expression. And as we look at the New Testament, there are actually only seven instances where this expression, baptism in the Holy Spirit, or with the Holy Spirit, even appears. And the first four are from the last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. Uh, As he witnessed to the identity and the work of Messiah Jesus. Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he, that is Messiah, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And with fire. Mark 1, 7 and 8, and he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 3, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we refer to as the synoptic gospels, they're very similar in their expression. But notice the, the account given by John the Evangelist about this, um, these words of John the Baptist. John, John's Gospel, chapter 1 29 to 34. The next day, he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom 
I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. And that, that description and that experience was what John saw when he baptized Jesus in the Jordan. Now, John says a mouthful here about the person and work of Jesus, and it would be worthy of anyone to just study those six verses. But I want you to notice just two aspects of his witness regarding Jesus on this occasion. First, he says that Jesus is the Savior. He is the Savior. John saw Jesus, and he cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away, takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is the one who offered himself up, offered his own life as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Second, John says that Jesus is the one who baptizes. He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the Savior, John says, who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is Messiah, the Christ, the eternal Son of God, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Over and over again in the Old Testament, those are the two marks of Messiah, that he would be the one who took away sins, that he, would, he was the one who would deal with the sins of, of the whole world. Isaiah 53, for example, comes to mind but also that he would be the dispenser of the Holy Spirit. The fifth of those seven references to the baptism of the Holy Spirit appears in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. The occasion is uh, Jesus' instruction to his disciples. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Uh, He has not yet ascended into heaven Gospels tell us that Jesus, or Acts Acts chapter 1 actually tells us that Jesus was with them for a period of 40 days before he ascended into heaven. So at Acts 1 verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait, to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water. He's quoting John here. John baptized with water. And again, he's harkening back to three years past, the very beginning of his ministry when John said this of Jesus. Now Jesus has gone to the cross. He's been buried. He's been raised. He's about to ascend and be glorified. And, and, And Jesus is hearkening back to the words of John. John baptized with water, but you, my disciples, will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Jesus spoke those words and made clear to his disciples here in Acts 1, verses 4 and 5, 
that the baptism in the Holy Spirit to which John was pointing and which John prophesied was what would take place as an event in a matter of days during the feast of Pentecost. Now, did Jesus, was Jesus saying that the baptism with the Spirit was a one-time event? I believe that he was. The baptism of the Holy Spirit has happened once and we enter into its blessings when we believe in Christ. In Acts 11, verse 16, is the sixth reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Peter speaking, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is Peter's reflection on his experience with Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10, which we'll see in just a few minutes. And the seventh reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit is in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. Again, I I read this earlier. This is Paul. Um, This is the seventh and last direct reference in the New Testament to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, say one spirit. We were all baptized. We were all baptized, past tense, into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all, say all, all were made to drink of one spirit, one body, one spirit, one baptism. And I take Paul's use of the word baptism here to mean the baptism with the spirit. It's the the one baptism that we all share in common. In Ephesians chapter four, verses four through six, Paul wrote this, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One body, one spirit, one baptism. Now, let's observe this, that Jesus, as John said, is the unique baptizer with the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water, Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so we come to the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost, as a word, means 50th. Like if you have a 50th anniversary, a 50th birthday, it it was always dated to the 50th day after Passover. And we read in Acts 1, as I mentioned, that Jesus was on earth for 40 days, which is kind of a generic number in the Bible. But he was with them for 40 days, and he said, in just a few days, you're going to receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It's going to happen. Wait, you just anticipate it. It's going to happen in the next day, next day. So a week and a half after Jesus was ascended, this thing happened. 
Pentecost, we always think, when we hear the word Pentecost, we think of this one event. But, but Pentecost was one of the feasts, the annual feasts of Israel as part of the feast cycle. And so this was an annual event. People would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, which was otherwise known as the Feast of Ingathering, which is amazing, you know, in its, in its symbolism. When the day of Pentecost arrived, we read, they were all together in one place. I'm reading from Acts chapter 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. I always wondered if, you know, the old, the old monks that shaved the top of their heads, you know, if that was just kind of the symbol of the, the spirit the spirit burn right there. I, I don't know. Just, just my lunatic ravings. Pay no attention. And, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled. These are the disciples, okay? These are not the people. These are not the onlookers. These are the disciples. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together. They're like, what's going on? And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now the word tongues here, the word in, in, in the ESV, which I'm reading from, the word tongues is the word uh, glossia, like from our word glossary. It speaks to a uh, a language, a, a known language. The word, uh, the word language, the word that's translated language here is dialectos, and so it's a dialect of a language. And so when, when these people come together, they're bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own, not just his language group, but his dialect, his unique, specific dialect of that language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans. Now, they're in Jerusalem, so they're, they're used to hearing Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, perhaps Arabic, but now they're hearing the praises of God in their own language, and, and it lists a whole bunch of nations there. I won't take the time to read it, but they're, they're from the whole known world. Verse 12, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. They're all drunk. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he speaks that prophecy in last days God declares I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and daughters shall prophesy and so forth and then down in verse 21 it says and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and he goes on he says men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And, 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 and Peter's saying, look, the sign that Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God is what you're experiencing, what you're seeing, what you're hearing right now. Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, meaning Gentiles, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Say everyone. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people came to faith in Christ and were baptized that day and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes when we think about Pentecost, we think absolutely everybody was speaking in tongues. And that's not what it says. It says that the apostles were speaking in tongues, that the, the group of disciples that were gathered there were speaking in tongues. And it was a sign. And it became an opportunity for Jesus, or for Peter to preach about Jesus. And 3,000 people believed. The promise of Pentecost is that everyone whom the Lord calls receives the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone, everyone, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, I want to ask this question and then try to answer it. Does the Bible teach that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is a blessing, a second blessing subsequent to conversion. And I believe that it does not. There's a great deal of confusion and division surrounding this topic in the church today. Let's begin with this, that Jesus said that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was going to take place in a few days, and it took place. The Spirit of God was poured out on the church. It was the beginning of the, the life, the mission of the church. Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Nowhere in scripture are Christians said to be baptized with the Spirit subsequent to Pentecost. It's an important point because as you read the New Testament, you just don't find that. Secondly, Christians are never told to wait for or to specifically pray for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That command was given by Jesus to his disciples after his resurrection, before the ascension, about 10 days prior to the day of Pentecost, and the command is never repeated. 
So those who would see a subsequent, see the baptism with the Holy Spirit as a subsequent blessing will point to three events that are recorded in Acts. And the first one has to do with a, a group of Samaritans. Um, the, the most notable Samaritans in the New Testament are the Good Samaritan in Jesus' parable and the, and the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus interacted with. But Samaria was a, we would call it, a, we'd probably call it a county today, but it was a, a region of northern Israel. And you may recall that after the, after the stoning of Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church in Acts 7, it says that a great persecution broke out against the church and that the believers were scattered. And it says they preached the gospel wherever they went. Now, Philip was an apostle of Christ and he was one of those and he's the first kind of poster child for, for what happened when the believers were scattered out of Jerusalem and they went preaching the gospel. And it says uh, that, that Philip went down to this city in Samaria. He, uh, he healed the sick. He made the lame walk. He cast out demons. It says there was great joy in that city. And then at verse 12 of Acts 8, it says, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women, this water baptism. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. And you look at that and you say, well, it looks like a second blessing to me. That's a second act that where they received the Holy Spirit. Um, so why would we think anything other? Well, first of all, we have to ask, is it normative? In other words, is this something that happened over and over again where some people had received Christ and then someone had to come and lay hands on them for them to receive the Holy Spirit? Um, and the answer to that question is no. Uh, so we have to ask, what's going on here? The, this is the first time the gospel is the, this was recorded that the gospel has been preached outside of Jerusalem. And it's in Samaria. And these Samaritans believed and were baptized. You remember that Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There was a race issue here. There was a conflict between Jews and Samaritans. In John 4, 9, this is stated, and this is in the, the occurrence of Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. It says, it says in John 4, 9, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And, and I really believe that when when, the, when Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, the ends of the earth, that, that the apostles kind of looked at each other and said, yeah, right. You know, we've never been more than 30 or 40 miles from our own homes. 
and Samaria? I don't know. If I had to choose, I don't think I'd go there. And here's, here's what I want us to understand about this, that if this racial divide would have been allowed to continue, the mission of the church would have been stunted. It would have spelled disaster for the life of the church, the mission of the church. We'd had an apartheid church from the beginning. And so the guys in Jerusalem going, wow, that's, that's unusual. Samaritans have received Christ. And so they send Peter and John to go down and do a little fruit inspection. Is that really, really? Samaritans? And as we read, they prayed that they might receive the spirit. They laid hands on them and they did. No record of any speaking in tongues here. It just says that they received the Holy Spirit. You know, second blessing, perhaps, but not normative. What about Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, another unusual occasion. Um, Cornelius was a Roman centurion. He was an Italian, and he was a God-fearing man. Um, All of his household were God-fearing. They were known for their compassion and their charity. And um, Cornelius saw a vision of an angel of God that said, send to Joppa, to the house of a man named Simon, and another man named Simon, Peter, is living there. Send and bring him, because I have something for him to tell you. And so Cornelius sends his second in command with a contingent of people there in Caesarea. They go down to Joppa, the city is today called Jaffa, It's just south of Tel Aviv. Um, And bring Simon Peter back here. See, God was going to include Cornelius in the kingdom of God, and he intended to use Peter in that, but first he had to do some work on Peter. And so, meantime, Peter is having, Peter's on this roof. He, He has a vision of a sheet coming down out of heaven. He goes into some kind of trance or dream. He has a vision of this sheet coming down from heaven and the sheet is filled with all kinds of animals, clean and unclean to the Jews, kosher and non-kosher. And this voice says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no way. I'm a Jew. I've never eaten anything unclean. I've never eaten anything common. But this happened three times times. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. By no means, Lord. And it left, it says, Peter perplexed. So the guys arrived from Cornelius to get Peter. The spirit tells Peter to go with them and he goes and he arrives in Caesarea and coming into the house, he says to them, all who were gathered in the house, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. See, these are Gentiles. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You go, wait a minute, that was, those were animals, that was meat, Peter. How'd you make that translation? Peter made the translation. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. 
I ask then why you sent me. So Cornelius tells him about his encounter with an angel um, that told him to send for Peter. And at verses 34 to 35, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And so Peter explains the gospel, heavy focus on Jesus. And while he's preaching the spirit, falls on everyone who has heard his message and they begin speaking in tongues and worshiping God. So in this case, they're believing and they're receiving the Holy Spirit simultaneously. The Jews who had, the Jews who had come with Peter, so he had his own entourage of Jews that had come with him to Caesarea, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out, listen, even on the Gentiles, verse 45, and Peter then ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, water baptism. And so then in, in chapter 11, Peter's back in, goes back to Jerusalem, and there he's attacked by a group called the Party of the Circumcision. They're also referred to as the Judaizers. And this was a group of Christian Jews who said, anybody, that's, any Gentile that becomes a Christian first has to become a Jew. Well, that's not any fun prospect for a male Gentile. <laughs> but there were other things that went with that. And they, they just insisted on that. Um, so Peter told them his story, and then he concluded with this. I mean, he tells the whole story over again in Acts 11. And then at verses 16 through 18 of 11, Peter says, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And Peter's going, I was remembering Pentecost, and this was just like that. This was just like that. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And all you Gentiles said, Amen. <laughs> so Peter is going, Yeah, this is, this, it was just like Pentecost. And so these Jerusalem believers glorified God, and they're understanding that God is, God is expanding the kingdom beyond Judaism. And you look at this and you say, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Didn't have to happen. Why did it happen? Here's what I believe, that the signs here were for the Jews. It weren't for Cornelius and his household. The signs were for the Jews to validate that the faith of this Gentile Cornelius and his entire household was genuine and that they had been accepted, they had been included in the kingdom of God, and therefore they could not stand in the way of what the Holy Spirit was doing. So here, in the case of the Samaritans, they, they've attacked, or, or God has confronted racial discrimination. Here he's confronting religious discrimination in the church, in Peter's own heart, on the part of the Judaizers. And if the Judaizers had prevailed, just think about this. If the Judaizers had prevailed, the mission of the church, again, would have been aborted before it started. Well, what about the Ephesian dozen? They'll say, well, who are the Ephesian dozen? It's a street gang. No. 
a dozen, uh, a dozen disciples of John that, that Paul encountered in the city of Ephesus. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. You go, disciples? Well, these are Christians. No. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, water baptism. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So again, the word disciples may be misleading. These guys clearly weren't Christians yet. They were, they were followers of John. They had received his baptism, so they had been prepared to receive the gospel, but they had not yet received it. And so um, when Peter explains this to them, I mean, they're, they're, they're several hundred miles to the northwest of Jerusalem. They're in the city of Ephesus. They had never encountered Jesus. They had never heard the gospel. They'd never had the opportunity. So John the Baptist had spoken of the baptism with the Holy Spirit as the future gift of the coming Messiah. John the Evangelist observed concerning a statement of Jesus, as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That was the thing that had to happen first. And again, some people want to point to this as a two-stage conversion, but it's clear that these guys were not yet believers. And so what took place was simultaneous with their belief in Christ told them about Jesus, they believed and were baptized, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So, listen, Christians are never told to wait for or to specifically pray for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they've already received it. Why does it matter? Why does it even matter? Why do we have to quibble over this? Well, first, it's the Spirit of God who brings people into the family of God. And it's terribly confusing to speak of the Spirit baptizing people who already have the Spirit. And again, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 13 and 14, for in one Spirit we were, past tense, all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. So if you have the Spirit, you've been baptized in the Spirit, why do you need to be baptized again in the Spirit? Terribly confusing. Secondly, it's plain that all Christians have the Spirit. So you get yourself into to deep theological trouble when you insert that someone has the Spirit on one hand but haven't received the baptism in the Spirit on the other as if they should have another experience. And you have to work very hard to make the Scriptures say what they simply do not say. Third, one of the unfortunate byproducts of insisting on a second blessing is that it creates divisiveness in the church. Um, because in the church, then you have those who believe that they've received something from God that others haven't. A second experience, a deeper spirituality, and, and most of those who teach the baptism in the Holy Spirit as a second blessing after believing in Jesus insist on the sign of that being speaking in tongues. 
And there are two more problems with that position. Paul said that in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead, he wrote this to the Colossians, in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. And he he follows that right up and he says, and you have been given fullness in Christ. In other words, when you receive Christ, you receive the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And secondly, Paul says to the Corinthians who struggled with this mightily, that not all speak in tongues. There's this sequence of questions that Paul asks, rhetorical questions, the answer to which is obviously no. One of those is, do all, uh, not all speak in tongues, do they? He says, and it's right, not all speak in tongues. So if speaking in tongues is something that everyone who's been baptized in the Holy Spirit must do, then there are a lot of people who seem to have missed out on that and and to insist then that on that is to create a caste system in the church of haves and have-nots, the spiritual and and the more spiritual. That's a problem. So I'm about done, but let me just say this. So if you have had an experience that you put this label, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, on in which you personally spoke in tongues or you prophesied, there was some other manifestation of the Spirit, what are you to make of it? I believe that you need to think of that not as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I I don't think you should diminish it. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm not here to say that you didn't have that experience, there was something wrong with that experience, if you had that experience. What I'm here to say is it's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's something else. And you should think of it as a special filling of the Holy Spirit when God did something unique in you, special in you. And then if you've received the gift of tongues, you've received the gift of prophecy, you've received another sign gift, that you exercise that gift appropriately according to biblical directives. In Ephesians 5, 18 to 21, we are told that we are to be being filled with the Spirit, that this this filling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit is a one-time event, that that the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, we believe in Christ, we enter into the blessing of that baptism. But the filling is the ongoing thing, where the Spirit just keeps filling us creating Christ in us, transforming us from the inside out, making us more and more like Jesus, giving us the power, giving us the resources to live the life he's called us to live. Ephesians 5, 18 to 21, be filled, continuous imperative, be be being filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When you're filled with the spirit, it's gonna change your conversation. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You're going to worship in a more powerful, deeper way, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to have an attitude of gratitude. You Stop being the grumpy person you naturally are. And, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that there's going to be a change in our relationships, that that, that self-will becomes subordinated to the oneness, the unity of the body of Christ. Let's pray. 
Lord God, I pray that you would take your word, that you would apply it to our lives, that we would ponder these things. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work unity in us, that your Holy Spirit who came uh, to reveal truth to us uh, would do that. And uh, Lord, that we would be humble in our responses uh, to your word and to realize that we are, we're looking into things that are a mystery to us and that the person and the work of your Holy Spirit is far beyond our ability to fully understand. But we thank you that you've made your word clear to us. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would just take these things and, and cause us to ponder, cause us to reflect and uh, act accordingly in our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you spent the, sent the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, to guide us into all the truth. I pray in his name, amen.